Welcome everyone. Jen, could we enjoy three sounds of the bell, please? During the sitting this evening, I let my awareness rest with each one of us that's here, moving my eyes slowly across the screen and drinking in the miracle of our presence together. What a gift. What a gift that we can do this. Some of you I get to see almost every day and some of you I get to see rarely. But it's such a gift, no matter how often we come together, that now we're here and we all have this chance to wake up together. Well, tonight's business is back to the eight realizations of the great beings. And we're on to the second realization. And I'm going to share my screen and ask if someone would be willing to read this realization for us. Anyone want to do that? I see Margot, your hand went up right away. Yeah. The second realization is the awareness that more desire brings more suffering. All hardships in daily life arise from greed and desire. Those with little desire and ambition are able to relax their body and mind free from entanglement. Thank you, Margot. All hardships in daily life arise from greed and desire. So it seems to me that this is quite a bold statement. All hardships in daily life arise from greed and desire. It's a, bo a bold statement in light of our culture and our cultural understanding. I think our cultural understanding is quite different from that. I think that we tend to believe something more like that happiness comes when my desires are satisfied. Right? Not that I that not that desire itself is the problem or that greed is good. Remember that movie from the 80s where that was sort of the, the mantra of the movie, greed is good? Uh, or that everybody pursuing their self-interest increases the common good. And it's the whole underpinning of our economic system. It's the underpinning of Darwinian evolutionary theory that everybody individually pursuing their own interest is better for everyone. So I suspect that this statement, all hardships in daily life arise from greed and desire, probably isn't what's in our gut. I think what's in our gut probably is something more like, well, it's not really desire that's the problem. The problem is me not being able to satisfy my desire. 
Yeah. But the sutra asserts that more desire brings more suffering. And I think that's really bold. But it doesn't just show up in this sutra. It shows up all throughout Buddhist teachings. I love Ajahn Chah's way of saying this. And he was the Thai forest monk who was a teacher of many of the American teachers that came back in the first wave of, of Buddhist teachers in the U.S. And he put it like this. He said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete happiness. So that's the way he summarized this, uh, this basic idea that more desire brings more suffering. So here's my question. Do you actually believe this? Do you really believe that more desire brings more suffering? I mean, put up your hand if, if you believe it. About half or a third or so, okay, okay. Now, if you do believe it, do you behave as though you believe it? Yeah, because it's one thing for, for my mind to assent to an idea. It's another thing for me to look at my behavior and, and see, oh, do I really go along with what my mind is saying? Uh, and I, when I look at myself, oftentimes I think I behave as though I don't believe this, even though I've read these sutras for years. I've read all the other kinds of sutras and the other teachings. And I say, yeah, 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 that's, that's true. That makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure my behavior really bears that out. Oh. So it seems to me that the only way to really test this out, whether or not we really believe this statement, whether we think it's true, and whether we believe that if we behave in accordance with this statement, that we'll be happier. And I think the only way to find that out is to practice with it, to take it into our actual daily life and practice with it and see for ourselves whether or not more desire brings more suffering. So that's what I'd like to spend most of the time on tonight is actually talking about how to make this real in our lives so we can find out for ourselves. I mean, these are the eight realizations of great beings. We don't have to take their word for it. We're great beings ourselves. Let's figure it out on our own. So here's the four steps, and I'm going to go into each one of them with, with some detail, but I just want to give you an idea of what's coming. So the first step is to contemplate. The second step is to understand. The third step is to surrender. And the fourth step is to relax. So let's, let's un unpack those a little bit. Contemplate. So to contemplate our desire is to see our desire clearly. To contemplate our desire is to see our desire clearly. Now, this is nothing other than the first noble truth. The first noble truth says that suffering exists. And so our first step in this practice is to see our desire clearly and see if it's suffering. Now, I don't mean to just, in, the, in an abstract, 
look and see if suffering exists somewhere out there. What I'm saying is we have to look at our own life and our own heart to see the suffering there. Not somewhere else out there, but right in here, right now, in this life as I'm living it. This first noble truth doesn't have much value when it's abstract, but when it's personal, then it has great value. So we want to look at our own experience for this. So to contemplate is to see our desire clearly. And the first thing I like to see here is how deeply desire actually permeates my whole sense of a separate self. You know, it's just everywhere in me. It's, so in order to see that, I have to first slow down, because if I'm going along with a lot of momentum, I'm not going to see anything clearly. Right? I'm just going to be busting through life. So I'm going to slow down, and I'm going to pay attention to what's happening. These are basic mindfulness practices that we do all the time. We did that tonight when we sat on our cushions. We, we slowed down and we paid attention. So we know that. But here's the step in this contemplation that I'd like to, to suggest that we do. When we have slowed down and paid attention, we label the desires that we see in us as we see them. So let me, let me show you what that looks like. So as I slow down and I pay attention, I begin to see a desire arising in me and I say, ah, that is greed. It's a desire to reach out and grasp after something. Ah, greed is here. I'll label it as greed. And then as I sit, I notice that I've got dissatisfaction with the way things are right now in my comfort on the cushion, I say, ah, that is the desire for something to be different. And I label it that, my desire for something to be different. Maybe I've been sitting a while and I, uh, I think, oh, is this going to go on forever? And I want to look down at my watch and I say, ah, impatience. That's impatience. Maybe I keep sitting for a while, and I think, ooh, I wonder what's going on in the house. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's desire of fear of missing out. So this is the process. I just keep labeling the desire that comes up. And, and I get very intimate with what desire looks like in my moment-to-moment flow. When I do that, I see all the subtle ways that I am trading away just this for just that. Just that. I want that. I want that. I'm trading away just this. You know, and just this, being aware of this present moment, is true. But just that, all those things out there that I might desire, That is nothing more than desire's fantasy. It's some state in the future. It's some condition that I don't already occupy. It's a fantasy. It's not real. It's what desire is making up in my mind. So these are the things that we can contemplate to become aware of our 
desire. So that's the first step to contemplate, to see our desire clearly. The second step, understand. So to understand our desire is to use our intelligence to examine the roots of our desire. I'll say it again. To understand our desire is to use our intelligence to examine the roots of our desire. Now you might recognize this step as the second noble truth. And the second noble truth says that suffering comes from causes and conditions. And again, this, this isn't helpful at all as an abstract concept, but it's very helpful when it's personal, when we can see that my suffering comes from these roots. Doesn't help much for us to look outside and say, oh, that's suffering, it must be caused by that. We have to look at this suffering and see that it's caused by this. So we can use our intelligence to understand the illusory nature of everything that we desire. It's like a big game of shadows. You know, it's illusory. All that stuff, when we say, I want just that instead of just this, all those that's are illusory. They're not real in the way we think they are. For instance, Mike gave a talk a week or so ago on impermanence. And he showed us how we chase after phantoms, thinking they're permanent when they're not. They're always, always changing. And what we can see when we look into the roots is that we can see that our whole idea of ourselves as separate is just riven through with desire. And it's, done, it's riven through with desire because it's built on a fundamental mistake. And the fundamental mistake is our ignorance of who we really are. We think that we are a separate self, that we are disconnected from everything else. And that ignorance causes us to believe that I can only be happy when I reach out and grab something else that's separate from me and bring it into me. But in reality, we are deeply connected with everything. There is no true self and other. And this is what ignorance tells us, that we are separate. But in reality, we aren't. And I love the, the illustration of this. When we, when we stand at, on the bank of a river, and we're on one shore, and we look across the river, we think that there is another shore that is separate from the shore that we're standing on. We think that it is separate. But if we were to walk up the river to the headland, where the river starts as a spring coming out in a mountain meadow somewhere, we could step right over the top of that headland and be on the other shore. There's no separation between the two shores. They're actually one. It's just our ignorance that creates the illusion that they are two and that they are separate. So our desire is planted in this, that we are separate and incomplete and that we must reach out and grab something else to make us complete.
So we have to understand our desire by using our intelligence to examine its roots. And we just have to keep looking. Every time we see our desire, we have to ask, is this true? Am I really separate from the thing I desire? And then investigate that. Okay, step three, surrender. Now, surrender, to surrender to our desire is to let it go. Let it go. And this step is the third and fourth noble truths together. So the third noble truth says that liberation is possible. And the fourth noble truth says that there is a path that leads us to liberation. So when we surrender our desire, we do both of those things. We know that it's possible to surrender it, and we do the practice that it takes to actually let it out of our grasp. Now, I used a, an intentionally provocative and non-Zen word here when I chose the word surrender for this. So stay with me on this one. I'll, I'll try to tell you why I did that. and. Um, and see if it makes sense to you. So after we see and understand the suffering brought by our desire, we surrender the habit of indulging them. We surrender the habit of indulging our desires. So I'm using this word surrender in a very particular sense. Usually, the normal way we use this word is we talk about Surrender meaning submitting ourselves to some frightening force, right? We submit to something powerful and it takes us over and it diminishes us. But I'm using it in the sense that's different. What I mean is when we surrender, we are liberating ourselves from that force. We're surrendering our grasp on that force and letting it go. See the difference? One is we surrender to it and are crushed by it. The other is we surrender our hold on it and let it go. So we surrender our desire by, well, we don't, excuse me. We surrender our desire rather than surrendering to our desire. Do you follow that difference? Yeah. So here, here's an illustration of that, because that's a little abstract. You guys, uh, you're all familiar with the movie Wizard of Oz, I'm sure. I mean, it's a, it's a cultural phenomenon. When I was a kid and that movie would come on, all the neighborhood kids would gather in one house or another and we'd watch the movie and we would be deliciously scared throughout the whole thing, right? And it came on like once a year and it was a big deal. It was bigger than Christmas, really, you know, to watch the Wizard of Oz. So the part that scared me the most in that movie was when the Wicked Witch of the West rode on her broom and she rode across the sky, surrender Dorothy. Remember that? Surrender Dorothy. Oh my gosh. So as a child, I thought surrendering to the Wicked Witch of the West was about the most frightening thing possible. You know, her green visage and her evil power. And I would surrender to that and just be subsumed and crushed by her evil. And I think probably Dorothy 
uh, took that as well. You know, like, can you imagine looking up in the sky and seeing surrender your name here? You know, from the Wicked Witch of the West, it'd probably really, really frighten you. But it seems to me that Dorothy spent most of the movie trying to flee that witch and come home. So she really was trying to avoid having to surrender to the witch. But what if Dorothy had read that surrender Dorothy in the sense we're talking about now? Not in the sense that I took it as a child of surrender to the fear of the witch, but surrender my fear of the witch. What if instead Dorothy had surrendered her fear? So I think that's actually what the whole theme of the movie was when I look back at it. Dorothy and her companions went on this big adventure and all along the way they were trying to surrender their fear. And you probably remember the culminating scene of the movie. They've gotten to the Wicked Witch of the West castle and they're surrounded and trapped. Her minions are all around her, the flying monkeys and the, the soldiers, and they're all trapped in this, in this kind of hallway. And uh, the Wicked Witch comes and she sees she's got them. And she takes her broom and she reaches up to a, a torch and she lights her broom and she goes and she lights the scarecrow on fire. So in that moment, Dorothy surrenders her fear. She picks up a bucket of water and she throws it on the scarecrow to douse the flames, but she also throws it all over the witch and melts the witch. I'm melting. <clears throat> and in that moment, in that act of compassion to save her friend, Dorothy surrendered her fear. She, didn't, she wasn't a victim of her fear anymore. She surrendered her fear and took action, and that melted away the evil witch. So a Dorothy can do that. We can too, right? We don't have to be um, surrendered to our desires. We can surrender our desires. So go Dorothy, go us. Now I said this wasn't a very, surrender wasn't a very um, Zen term, but actually we have a really beautiful mantra of surrender. And we, we um, chant this mantra at the end of the Heart Sutra. The mantra is gate gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. And that translates something like gone, gone, completely gone, gone to the other shore, awake. And we have surrendered our ignorance and we've gone to the other shore, the other shore that was the shore we were already on. So we do know surrender. But I think Dr. Martin Luther King gave us the best translation of this when he said, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. He wasn't talking about being freed by someone else. He was talking about freeing ourselves, surrendering desire. Hmm. So those are the steps that take the work. The fourth step, relax. 
Ah, this is the easy one. To relax is to let our true self emerge. The Sutra says those with little desire and ambition are able to relax, their body and mind free from entanglement. When we surrender, when we let go of our desire, relaxation is simply present, naturally. It's what's left when we let go of the things that have been burdening us. And according to this sutra, desire is one of the things that burdens us. When we let go of those burdens, our deep wisdom and our goodness rise into that space that formerly was colonized by desire. Our true self was simply colonized. So all we have to do is simply relax into the freedom that's there. Nothing to create. It's there. We find ourselves no longer trading just this or just that. We relax into the truth. We relax into the present moment. It's really lovely lovely way to live. We become free to respond to things as they are with love and compassion and with kindness and with joy. And who knew that all this time we felt the victim of our desire that we could let it go and experience this kind of freedom? Those with little desire and ambition are able to relax, their body and mind free from entanglement. Relax. So just to review a little bit, we contemplate, we see our desire clearly, we understand by looking into its roots and its causes, we surrender our hold on it, let it go, and then we relax into the true self that is there all along, all along. This is possible. This is possible for every one of us. This isn't something that happens for the great beings in this sutra. This is possible for us, for all of us, and to some degree, we all know this already. We all know this already. So please don't wait. Please don't wait. I'd like to end by reading a poem by Ian McCrory. It speaks really eloquently, and thank you, Juby, for sharing this poem with me recently. He writes this, you cannot crave what you already have. You can only crave what you don't have. Therein lays the misery. Once you have what you didn't have, the craving unquenchable and insatiable emerges again. 
this person, this dream, this goal, status, power, wealth, cannot assuage this gnawing hunger. It doesn't work. It has never worked. It will never work. It cannot work. When craving is present, and when is it not, it resembles the Trojan horse, all haughty grandeur, inherently hollow, but full of the force of but full of the force to overpower your strongest resistance. For the gypsy, it's home. For the householder, it's freedom. When craving is simply noted, the gypsy finds he's already home, and the householder forever free. When craving is simply noted, the gypsy finds he's already home, and the householder forever free. Please be forever free. Jen, could we enjoy two sounds of the bell? <laughs> 